What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. We do this program five days a week for you at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, specifically for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, maybe you're looking around for an answer and you haven't found that answer, well, we can help you out with that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, you will want to dial the U.S. country code 1 and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. We get them every day at ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery, our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Look for the comments box. That is where you want to put your question. Jeff will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and uh, hopefully we can answer it on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing decent, thank you. Are you staying cool? Not in the slightest. (laughs) But you know what today is? The two anniversaries take place today. Yes. One of them, this is the anniversary of of, uh, uh, Humana Vitae, Pope Paul VI's encyclical, which reiterated the Church's longstanding teaching that uh, contraception is immoral in all circumstances. 1968, I believe. 1968, July 25th. It's also my wedding anniversary today. Hey! 31 years. How about that? Congratulations, my friend. Thank you so much. I think that is fantastic. Here's an email to lead us off from Trent, who says, Dr. Anders, I am 22. I live with three of my closest friends, all of whom I have known for 16 years. We have lived together for almost two years, and we just moved into a new house. Two of my friends recently got girlfriends. Now they have begun sleeping over consistently these past few months. They've even talked about moving in. Well, I'm not sure how to address this. All of us are baptized Catholics, but I'm the only one who practices the faith, even though I try to invite them to Mass or Bible study. I believe our scenario fulfills your three-part criteria that you often quote to use when contemplating and admonishing our brothers. But I'm not sure how to approach this situation, or even if I should. I could really use your help. God bless, Trent. Hey, Trent, thank you so much. I appreciate the question. Obviously, you know your friends much better than I do, so you're going to have a much better sense of what you might be able to say or not say. Mm. But if you are persuaded that you need to say something... Um, then there's probably no easy way through the discomfort. You're just going to have to bite the bullet and sit down and go, you know, hey, guys, uh, you know, how much I love you and we have a wonderful time together, but this is, uh, you know, this is weighing heavy on my conscience and I want to share it with you. I don't know any other way to do it. And they'll probably not care. Yeah. And then you got to make a decision about, what you're going to do going forward. Yeah, there it is. Hope that's helpful for you, Trent. Here's one now from EM. Dr. Andrews, I have a non-denominational friend who has a problem with the Catholic Church because, quote, 
it's legalistic. What does she mean by this, and can you explain this terminology a little further? Love your show. Thanks, E.M. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So when most people describe some form of religious practice as legalistic, what they mean is that the believer's life is constrained by a lot of rules and often petty rules. That's generally how the word legalistic is used. And uh, it, it is certainly possible for a person to live their Catholic faith in a legalistic way, as if the point of Catholicism were to follow a list of rules. Um, that's not my experience of the Catholic Church. It's not the experience of most Catholics that I know. Um, but, uh, but you know, you can grow up in a legalistic family and, and uh, you, you know, I mean, take, for example, the Church's rule that you have to fast for an hour before Holy Communion. Uh, you know, maybe you live in an environment where, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting at the breakfast table, you know, before you're going to go to Mass that day, and someone says, wait, 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 you, you can't put that last bite of muffin in your mouth because <laughs> you've only got 61 minutes until Holy Communion. You know, mm. that's, a, that's, a, that's an application of a rule that could yeah. feel legalistic. Most Catholics, I know, don't, don't live with that kind of scrupulous attention. And, uh, and to be honest with you, the quote-unquote rules that govern Catholic life are few and far between. The yeah. most important was you got to go to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. Yeah. Um, beyond that, the, the moral structure of the Catholic life isn't really constructed around rules, but around virtues. And those are habits. Those are stable dispositions of soul, inclinations to consistently do the good and avoid evil. Uh, they can't be restricted, can't be limited to just a delineation of rules. Appreciate uh, that. E.B., thank you so much uh, for your email. Did I, uh, E.M., got it there. E.M. Here's one now from Christina, all the way in Perth in Western Australia. Good day, Dr. Anders. I have been invited to attend a wedding of a couple who are both baptized Catholics, but both have fallen away and are not practicing their faith. They've been living together and have only just now decided to get married next year in Bali. I doubt it will be in a Catholic church. Should I attend the wedding? Thanks. God bless you and your team for your work. And that's from uh, Christina in Perth, Western Australia. Yeah, Christina, thanks. I appreciate the question. It's hard for me to answer um, these kind of questions with a definitive yes or no, because I'm not close enough to the situation as you are. Um, you know, this is this is going to be uh, an objectively invalid wedding. If you have two Catholics that marry outside the church, um, it's invalid, so that's problematic. Uh, my, my, my sense is that the people involved uh, really don't give two figs whether the Catholic Church says their marriage is valid or not. And uh, for people who are not living a Catholic life, the perception that the church exists simply to criticize what they think of as their harmless moral choices is itself a barrier to becoming Catholic, right? So a lot of people, we just had a caller that said we think the Catholic Church is legalistic, mm. and um, this is a rule. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not essential to the nature of the sacrament that it be performed in the Catholic Church. It is appropriate that it be form performed sure. in the Catholic Church, and therefore the Church has a rule about that, that Catholics should marry in a Catholic Church unless they get a dispensation. It's not essential to the nature of the sacrament. Now, there's a logic behind it, but the logic's only apparent if you're a practicing Catholic. If you're outside the Church, it doesn't make any sense to you. So you have to really make a judgment about what you want to accomplish with your action, if you want to you know, build a relationship or make a point. Christina, thanks for listening to us in Perth in Western Australia, a beautiful city. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones here. You can join us at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Stay with us. 
Glad you're with us for the Tuesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, there's a new book out now from EWTN Publishing. It's The Roots of a Christian Civilization by Father Brian Mullady. It's your compendium on Catholic social teachings. And in these incisive pages, Father Brian answers the question, should law implement morality or not? Father provides you with a compendium of accessible answers to a range of questions on spiritual and moral theology. You'll learn about the uniqueness of the individual because of the spiritual soul and how society must be governed by virtues like prudence, justice, and charity. It's a very important work, especially for our times. The Roots of a Christian Civilization, First Principles of a Just and Ordered Society by Father Brian Mullady. It's a new book now available from EWTN Publishing. Find it at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Janine driving through Maryland, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Janine, what's on your mind today? Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Can sure. you hear me? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, go right ahead. Okay. So, uh, Dr. Anders, I'm a cradle Catholic, so I was raised uh, on Jesus' Word. Whatever he said, accept it the way it is. But as I've lived down now down south in South Carolina, there's a lot of people that, uh, a lot of the other Protestant religions, don't believe what he said. And, you know, the, some things that he said were so obvious clear, like uh, John 6, of course, and in and Caesarea Philippi, where he, ha- where he names Peter, the rock, and says, on this rock, I'll build my church, and then I'll give, give you the keys to the kingdom. Do they just somehow decide Jesus was lying? Like, well, I don't understand how they could ignore these very specific, clear statements of Jesus. Sure, sure, absolutely. I really appreciate the question. So, um, Protestants, of course, are well aware of these texts, all of them. Well, you're talking about John 6 or Matthew 16 or what have you. They, they know these texts. They've commented upon them. They've reflected on them. They've written about them extensively, and they've debated them internally. So John 6, in particular, the teaching about the Eucharist, was a, was a tremendous subject of contention within early Protestantism. And, and really, there were three factions— uh, the Lutheran faction mm-hmm. tended to take Jesus at face value. And when he said, my flesh is real food, or this is my body, they said he said what he meant and meant what he said. Uh, there was another faction uh, in Protestantism associated with a man named Ulrich Zwingli that, that took Christ entirely figuratively when he spoke that way. And then there was a third faction associated with John Calvin that split the difference between uh, between Zwingli and Luther, and they had really knock-down, drag-out fights about it. So they, they know these texts, they have commented on them, uh, and there are Protestants that, that, that take them at face value and as, as Christ said them. Now, when it comes to Matthew chapter 16, um, again, I, I know Protestants, uh, very serious Protestants, that believe that Jesus meant what he said when he said that Peter was the rock and that to Peter he would give the keys. What, what, they, what they dispute is that Peter had the authority to pass that by apostolic succession to the next pope. 
And so that's that's not an uncommon position. As a, when I was in seminary in the Protestant seminary, very famous Protestant biblical scholar that uh, was at my seminary, he argued just this point. He says, oh, yeah, Jesus meant that Peter was the rock, but, you know, Linus wasn't. You know, the, the next pope's down the line, uh, Clement, Sixtus, and all the rest of them, they, they are not. They don't have succession from Peter. That's, a, as they would understand, a kind of a Catholic invention. Um, but there, there's a, there is a point of view within Protestantism that sometimes you manifestly don't take Jesus at face value. And uh, the progenitor of this idea was Luther himself. And it wasn't on the Eucharist. Luther really took Jesus seriously on the Eucharist. He, he once met with Zwingli in uh, Marburg, uh, the famous Marburg Colloquy, and they debated all the areas of Reformation theology and all the points they had in common. But Luther had written on the table the words hocast corpus meum, which means this is my body in Latin, and covered them with a cloth. And when they got around to the Eucharist, Luther yanks the cloth off the table, points to the words on the table, hocus corpus meum, and says, you know, this is what he said, this is where I stand, and I'm sticking with the words of Jesus. But he didn't have that same attitude when it came to other teachings of Christ, in particular the moral demands that Christ made upon the life of the Christian believer. And uh, Luther was really troubled by those because his own doctrine made of the Christian life something other than a kind of strict obedience to the moral law, which he thought was fundamentally impossible. So he had to come up with a way to get around the plain uh, meaning of Jesus's words, and not only Jesus, but all of the Bible, because so much of it deals with exhortation to the moral life. So Luther invented a hermeneutical method, an interpretive method that he called law and gospel. And what he held was that every time you come across an admonition or a warning or a threat or a command, he lumped that into the category of law. Every time you came across a, a promise or a comfort or, a, or an assurance, you, you lump that into the category of gospel. And in Luther's theology, the purpose of law is to scare the you-know-what out of you so that you will turn to gospel. And so it has a kind of rhetorical function, but, uh, but shouldn't be taken at face value. Mm. And he wrote a preface to the New Testament, Luther did, where he said the biggest mistake Christians can make in reading the New Testament is to imagine Jesus as if he were a second Moses and a lawgiver, which strikes me as bizarre, because if you read the <laughs> Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is absolutely presented as a second Moses and a lawgiver, right? Of course, of course. But, uh, but to take Jesus that way would have undone Luther's main theological conviction, which was justification by faith alone. So he mm. invented, invents this... Uh, really convoluted theory of interpretation to get around the plain sense of Jesus's words. Now, there are some modern Protestants, uh, modern like within the last 150 years, who have an even more radical view. This is the dispensational interpretation of Jesus, where they absolutely don't take Jesus at face value because they maintain, strangely enough, that Jesus's words were not meant for Christians. Wow. Yeah, they say that Jesus—this is their position. They say that Jesus came and offered salvation to the Jews who rejected it, and then when that dispensation fell apart, he makes an offer of grace to the Gentiles through the Apostle Paul. So so you will meet dispensational Protestants, fundamentalists, who fundamentally tell you, yeah, the Gospels are irrelevant to Christian life because they're not directed to Christians, which is—I mean, I just kind of want to, like— drive a nail through my head when I hear that <laughs> kind of stuff, because it's just, it's just insane. Oh. But, uh, but the all different kinds of ways that Protestants have either accepted or rejected uh, the plain meaning of the text. And it's, it's always struck me as ironic, because, the, of course, the clarion call of Protestantism is, hey, we're Bible alone. 
And the truth of the matter is they're not anything like Bible alone. They're Bible as interpreted by their own idiosyncratic tradition. Well, there it is. And Janine, thank you so much uh, for your call. We hope that's helpful for you. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go down to uh, Andrew, a first-time caller from Illinois, also listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Andrew, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yeah, um, uh, thank you. Um, just wanted to, to get uh, Dr. Andrew's um, uh, opinion. I know I don't want to circumvent my question here and sabotage myself because I know there's other callers. Uh, but before I ask my question, uh, I don't get it, uh, this whole uh, um, Protestant, you know, the, the, the Reformation. It seems like to sabotage the Catholic Church, or at least the, uh, the, 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 the authenticity of the Catholic Church back in the day. And then how it carried over, and it just kind of, you know, it just doesn't look, it doesn't bode well in front of other religions that were so fractured. Um, but that being said, um, because of the reason I said that is because I'm experiencing our pastor here in Illinois, one of them, our Catholic pastor, who's seen a lot of Catholics either leaving the church for some reason, and they're typically, their reason is this, is because of... Uh, they feel like there's, uh, they're not communicating with other church members. Uh, and I always said is that, you know, you're not there, you go there to give something to the Mass and, and take away, not to uh, create anything else. You know, you're there for a purpose. Uh, but, um, and they're just, they're, they're going to other mega churches who are built around our parish, and I would say probably almost 65 to 70 percent of the parishioners are there, are probably all former Catholics. Um, but anyway, my question to Dr. Andrews is that uh, I hear a dialogue not too long ago with some doctors talking about uh, that not every conception begins a life. And that, uh, and that, and that's why they're convinced that that life begins, that, that that's why they're never been convinced that life begins a conception and not every conception begins in life, most don't. And he says because the baby embryos uh, are not properly programmed and doesn't and develop, and they fall out of the body on its own. So um, it kind of really kind of struck me is that it's just a view that not every conception begins a life. Okay, um, I understand the question. I think there is a conceptual confusion on the part of the doctor that's making this assertion. And the, confe the, here's the here's the conceptual confusion. He is assuming that because there is some number of, of uh, zygotes that have chromosomal abnormalities that make it impossible for them to flourish, and so that there's a spontaneous abortion, not a procured abortion, but a right. spontaneous abortion, right. which we call a miscarriage, mm -hmm. that, that, that the existence of miscarriage as a normal biological fact necessarily means that those zygotes were not alive. That's a, that's a stipulative definition. What I mean by stipulative definition is he's just saying, what I mean by alive is a zygote that can, that can endure the first stages of pregnancy and, and, and make it to, you know, attaching to the uterine wall and proper growth mm -hmm. and development. Yeah. If it does that, then I'm calling it alive. But if it's, if it's the zygote that is spontaneously aborted, but I'm just stipulating that's not alive. How does he know that? How does he know that? 
right? So, I, look, I'm not a biologist, and I'm certainly not an embryologist, but the question, you know, are the conditions of life met? Uh, that's a biological question, and it's it's that the, the um, having a fatal disease doesn't make you dead. Like you can be alive with a fatal disease, you will it. eventually die. Yeah, yeah. Right, but you diagnose fatal disease in the living. And I think there's something analogous going on here. I, I, I grant you it's probable that an embryologist could find a fertilized embryo and say, okay, there's something wrong chromosomally here that will inevitably result in the spontaneous abortion of this fetus. But it, as long as there is growth and development up to that point, and I think that's one of the conditions biologically for defining life, right? So yeah. I, now, you know, the, is it possible that you can uh, that that you can conceive some sort of biological matter that doesn't have those necessary conditions? That's a question that's beyond my purview scientifically. Um, but uh, but I think the way he's framed it, uh, he's just stipulating a definition that we don't have to accept. <coughs> On the other questions that you raise. Um, so I, I partially agree with you and partially disagree with you about the, the purpose of Mass and the response of some Catholics uh, to the Catholic Church and their decision to leave. On the one hand, I think you're absolutely right that we can fulfill our obligation to God and grow spiritually in a church without Christian fellowship. It is possible to walk in—I mean, I've been to Mass in parishes that I, where I know absolutely nobody on the other side of the country. You know, I'm on a business trip or something. I go to Mass, mm -hmm. I don't know anybody. May, say my prayers, receive Holy Communion, offer the sacrifice, and go home to my hotel. And, you know, I'm, I'm better off for it, even though I don't know anyone. Um, however, I, I think that if that's your normal experience of Mass, if your normal experience of worship is, and of the parish is a place without any Christian community— then that is a that is a sick parish, that is a sick parish that is not living in accord with the demands of the gospel, which which emphatically teach that we are to love one another. Saint Augustine once said, "The reason God gave us the church was so we would have people to do good to," and uh, and our participation in Holy Communion and the Mass must must result in building up charity within the body of Christ. If it doesn't do that. Then our then our then our Eucharist is deficient uh, substantially, and Pope Benedict said the same thing in his encyclical Deus Caritas Est that a Eucharist that does not spill over into concrete works of charity is is essentially I forget the word he uses, but it's basically it's it's deficient in some way. Sure. Right? And so uh, when when Catholics leave the church and they complain, well, I'm leaving the church because maybe I was driven away by its overly bureaucratic and alienating nature. That's a genuine complaint, and one that parish leaders and pastors and bishops must take seriously. And to be fair, to be honest, I should say, Pope Francis, in a great deal of his writing, is going after exactly that question. Mm -hmm. he, he's constantly criticizing the, the, uh, the officious um, dogmatist who, who, you know, hews to the rubrical line in the Mass— but lacks charity towards his neighbor, and in consequence drives people away from the church. And the Pope has absolutely no patience for that, and, and none of us should. You, there's no point in going to the sacraments if it doesn't make you a charitable person. So I don't fault the people who've left, if that's their reason. I fault the parish that drove them away and think that we must transform the culture of the parish so that people aren't driven to those kinds of desperate 
conclusions. Uh, if I had more time, I'd speak to your questions about the Reformation. That's a topic of great interest to me, but I think we're coming up at a break. We are indeed. Andrew, thanks so much uh, for your call. Appreciate hearing from you in Illinois. In a moment, we'll be talking with Matt in Olmstead Falls, Ohio. Also, Aaron in Hastings, Michigan. We're going to get to a caller, uh, Braden in Louisiana, uh, asking about integralism. What is that? We're going to find out on the other side of the break. Phone number for you is 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. It's called a communion here on EWTN. If you are not a Catholic, you probably have a reason in your mind as to why you are not a Catholic. Let's talk about that at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A few minutes ago, David uh, Braden in Louisiana called. He says, first of all, happy anniversary. Oh, thank you kindly. And then he says, should all Catholics hold to integralism? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So integralism is the doctrine that the Catholic Church should, if possible, make itself the dominant religious force in, in civil society, the dominant force, moral force in civil society. Um, and uh, uh, you could have sort of harder and softer versions of it. The hard version would be basically anti-pluralist and anti-religious freedom and, and more or less have a quasi-Catholic the, uh, 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 theocratic state. It doesn't have to go to that extent, but that's kind of the idea. Okay. And uh, the Church's position is, no, that integralism is not the doctrine, of the, the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. And uh, and the, the Declaration of Dignitatis Humanae from the Second Vatican Council made it clear that people have a right, and the Church has an obligation to ensure that they can live according to their conscience and worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. And in a pluralist society, there are going to be plenty of people that are not that are not Catholic. Um, now, you know the, uh, the the question of the morality of the social order is very complicated, and and uh, it would be nice to think that there were a naked public square to to quote Richard John Newhouse, where we could have some sort of common uh, uh, civil theology, if you will, or civil. Uh, conception of ethics that we could all agree on, a sort of base from which to operate, um, and then we could have our various theological differences. And I, I acknowledge that that seems increasingly hard to do because mm -hmm. there's not a common conception of the human person, and therefore there's not a common conception of justice. So though integralism isn't the doctrine of the Church, uh, coming up with a coherent public philosophy that everybody can agree on is tremendously difficult, and that's part of the appeal of these absolutist perspectives, whether it be integralism on the Catholic right or, you know, say like wokeism on the liberal left, you yeah. know, mm -hmm. having a totalistic view of reality that I can then go impose on everybody else uh, sure satisfies my need for certainty and control. Um, living with the tension of pluralism and the uncertainty is uh, is very difficult. And it requires uh, virtuous statesmanship, something that we are not well endowed in these days. Yeah, apparently so. Uh, Braden, thanks so much uh, for checking in with us today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Marietta, a first-time caller from Shoreline, Washington, watching us on EWTN television. Marietta, what's on your mind today? I have a neighbor who went all through Vietnam, came back wounded, used to be a Catholic his whole life through. However, now he will not stay a Catholic or go back to church at all because of two words, he said. I'll give it to you. Two words. The Inquisition. Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, every Catholic 
should recognize that the Inquisition, and especially the Spanish Inquisition, was horrible. And no Catholic needs to be in the position of defending the Inquisition ever, right? There's, there's nothing to defend. It was an atrocious institution. Um, and, uh, and so as a Catholic, as a practicing Catholic, the way I cope with that is to recognize that, um, you know, when, when a civilization is Catholic, by definition, all of the thugs and criminals within it will be Catholic. Yeah. By definition. Yeah. Right. And and uh, the Inquisition played to a natural human tendency. We just talked about it in the last call, which is the desire for certainty, control, and and clear boundaries and clear lines, and uh, and that can lead us uh, to do atrocious things to people who disagree with us. And it, it's worse when there can be a profit motive involved, and all of those things came into play in the Inquisition. And so I, you know, I look at it and I say, look, Catholics have the capacity to do atrocious things, um, not in virtue of being Catholic, but in virtue of being human, and uh, that clearly doesn't reflect uh, the meekness of the humility of Christ to which we're all called to live. Um, now, you know, this doesn't justify the Inquisition. I think it's helpful to place the these aspects of Catholic history in context. Um, and recognize that, I mean, this kind of thing goes on not uniquely in the Catholic Middle Ages. It goes on today. It's been going on for all of human history. Um, you know, the desire to punish the outsider, to silence the dissenter, um, that's happening in our own day in, in, in a big way. There's, yeah. a, there's a social psychologist uh, who's not a Catholic, uh, not a conservative, but I'm fond of his work. His name is Jonathan Haidt. Uh, he's the founder of something called the Heterodox Academy, which he created— um, in in recognition of the chilling lack of free speech that is beginning to pervade America's colleges and universities, uh, affecting academic freedom and uh, the learning environment. And he describes in a number of articles the, the, the sort of reign of terror that many universities' professors live under, um, knowing that in any second their loyalty to the thought police could be called into question and their lives and their families thrown into an uproar uh, at the slightest complaint of offense by by some freshman student, you know, and yeah. I've known and personally, I've known individuals that have had their livelihood destroyed because somebody says, "Well, that individual said something offensive or against the status quo, or it wasn't politically correct." And so that kind of police state mentality seems to be on the rise, even in uh, you know America, land of the free and home of the brave. But here it is at our own doorsteps, and it's been, of course, it pervaded Soviet Russia and the Nazi state, and and so much of human history has been sure. pervaded by that that pernicious desire to control and to silence the outsider. So it's not a uniquely Catholic thing. Within Catholic history, the Roman Inquisition, the motive initially for the Roman Inquisition was that uh, peasant hordes were subjecting heretics and Jews to pogroms and to, uh, and to public lynchings and things of that sort, which were really quite atrocious. And the church actually said, you know, if, if we're going to have a public discussion about the role of heretics in civil society— it ought to be conducted uh, with proper rules of evidence and procedure according to the natural law. And the Roman Inquisition was actually created to be an institution that could prosecute heresy fairly, if, if there is such a thing. I mean, I, I recognize the problem with that statement. Uh, but within the context, uh, criminals in the Middle Ages would routinely commit heresy in order to have their cases tried in inquisitorial courts because they were understood to be far more fair than the civil courts. Wow. Right? And the church, look, definitely has blood on his hands in this period. I don't want to excuse that. Um, but at the same time, this kind of thing is going on. The church is also working out 
the very rules of evidence and civil procedure and, and conceptions of human rights that would ultimately go to inform things like the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Yeah. Uh, Marietta, thanks so much uh, for your question. Glad that you're with us uh, there in Michigan. Uh, Washington, I'm sorry. Next, we're going to go to Michigan and talk with Aaron in Hastings, Michigan, listening online, EWTN.com. Aaron, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Um, I'm actually coming back to the Catholic faith um, from the um, side of the contest movement. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually wondering, what is the Church's stance on Israel as a nation? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, you know, within, within fundamentalist Protestantism, there's a, for many, there's a strong belief that the nation of Israel today is continuous with Israel of the Old Testament. And it's the inheritor, sort of a direct inheritor of Old Testament prophecy, and deeply involved in uh, the apocalyptic prophecies of the New Testament. So the fate of Israel is tied to the fate of the world and the eschaton and the coming of Christ. And that's why it's so common in evangelical Protestantism and certain strands of evangelical Protestantism to have a sort of knee-jerk support for anything and everything that the state of Israel does and to refrain from any form of criticism. That's not the Catholic Church's position. We, we don't have that eschatology um, there's no belief that the state of Israel has any particular role at all in, in the fulfillment of end times prophecy. And so the evaluation of Israel as a political fact would be on a level with any other nation state. Mm. And so, you know, the Vatican Secretary of State is going to have an international policy that applies to Israel and to everybody that's, that's you know, based on mm-hmm. the natural law and human dignity and human rights and and then a kind of real politique where, you know, what are the actual concrete issues on the ground and what can we negotiate and what can we help facilitate that will bring as much peace and prosperity and liberty to as many people as possible. Aaron, is that helpful for you? Yes, it is. Thank you. Sure thing. Appreciate your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. We have time for a few more calls. If you want to jump in, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Hey, make your plans for a full weekend at this year's EWTN free family celebration taking place Friday, August 25th, right here in Birmingham. You can visit the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Hansville, attend Holy Mass, tour the Shrine, so much more, and then it's off to the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex on Saturday, August 26th for all the wonderful family celebration events. Go to EWTN.com slash family celebration to find out all about it and to register. And remember, it is all absolutely free. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Matt now in Olmstead Falls, Ohio, listening on the EWTN app, a free download. Uh, Matt, what's on your mind today, sir? First of all, I'd like to uh, compliment you, you gentlemen. Your your radio show is my favorite show. I really look forward to it, uh, listening to it. Every every show has uh, several uh, invaluable gems. Uh, enlightening my faith and uh, also uh, not only enriching, uh, enriching, enriching it, but making me more and more convinced that uh, my faith is the right one for me to pursue. Thank my you. question is: My question is this. I go to a, a, an evangelical Bible study only every Monday. 
not because I'm thinking about converting, but only because they're my friends and they asked me to come. And last night, the discussion got about, well, why is there suffering? You know, I don't see the point of suffering if I have faith and all this other stuff. And I made the suggestion, maybe uh, you should offer your suffering, or there's suffering in the world, to uh, atone for the sins of mankind in the world, and, and not only your soul, yourselves, and that there's a purpose to suffering. Now, immediately they reject that, and they said, no, no, my faith... Uh, Jesus said on the cross, cross is finished, and I feel all my sins are forgiven, so that, that's just not the case. And I told him, I said, maybe you should contemplate that the reason uh, you uh, are convinced of your position is you get to avoid the, uh, all, you know, the sufferings in the afterlife. And uh, this attitude that Jesus, uh, when he said it is finished, not that it's his paschal sacrifice, was finished with the four, you know, the fourth cup with, you know, the uh, sour wine. It's that um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. It is that you're trying to avoid the, the prospect of uh, uh, eternal uh, punishment? And you know, I, I didn't even use the word purgatory. So that's you know, that that's my. I, I don't even know if I made a question, but could you explain a rebuttal to the to this position, please? Okay, the, re the rebuttal to the position that when Christ said it is finished, that means there's nothing left for the believer to do other than to receive uh, uh, his intoning sacrifice in faith. Is that what I'm supposed to respond to? They say they believe in Jesus, and because Jesus said it's finished, uh, they they get to go straight to heaven. Or oh yeah. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, we have to make a distinction in theology uh, between what Jesus did on the cross and how we apply that to our lives. So there's the redemption objectively accomplished, and the redemption subjectively applied. And on both of those sides of the dichotomy, Protestants and Catholics believe different things. We have a different conception of what happened on the cross. We have a different conception of how we apply the value of the cross to our life. So here is the view that your friends have. They think that when Jesus died on the cross, that what was taking place was that God was imputing the sins of mankind to Jesus, counting them as if Christ had done them. So, you know, if you robbed a bank, God regards Jesus as if he robbed the bank that you robbed. That's what it means to impute. Mm -hmm. And then punishes Christ for sins that Jesus himself did not commit, that he punishes your sins in Jesus. Uh, and then simultaneously, he imputes Christ's righteousness to you. So if Jesus you know, healed a widow or raised the dead or fasted or prayed or did something meritorious, uh, God counts Christ's righteousness as if you had done that good thing. So it's you're exchanging your moral status for that of Christ's and vice versa. And the transaction, this is how you apply it, the transaction takes place through faith alone. So simply believing that God does that on your behalf makes it true in your case. Right? That's the Protestant view. Here is the Catholic view. Catholic view is that uh, Christ's death on the cross was a sacrifice of atonement, not a penal substitution. Penal substitution is the idea that God is punishing Jesus for your sins. Sacrifice of atonement is not punishment. 
So if you look, for example, at the Old Testament, when the, when the Hebrews would bring an animal and offer it in the temple, and they called that a sacrifice of atonement, it's patently obvious that God was not wrathful at the animal and pouring out his wrath on an irrational beast and then getting it out of his system. What was going on was the worshiper was bringing something of value. Could have been an animal, could have been a basket of fruit, could have been some grain. You know, today you might offer up your video games, whatever it is. You know, you're giving something up (laughs) to God out of love for him, Mm -hmm. right? And the value of the offering Mm -hmm. isn't that God gets to get it out of his system, as it were, that he gets to punish somebody for a sin. What the value to God is that the worshiper has made this offering. Be like me bringing flowers to my wife. I bring flowers to my wife. I'm not bringing her flowers so she can take out her wrath on them. Bringing her flowers because I want to show her that I love her. Totally different meaning ascribed to the act. So the Catholic sees Christ's death as a sacrifice, not a penal substitution. And the merit of Christ's sacrifice, it's meritorious. God rewards people who do good things. The merit of Christ's sacrifice earns for the church, which is Christ's body, the gift of grace and the Holy Spirit that then renovates our life. So we do receive that through faith in the sacraments, but also through our ongoing participation in the holiness of Jesus, that as we come to inhabit the mind of Christ and live Christ's life after him, uh, we live the love of God that's poured into our hearts. Jesus can say to us, God can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, because you really did feed the hungry and clothe the naked and give drink to the thirsty, etc. These things come to us uh, by faith through grace, but they really are our moral cooperation that God rewards at the end of the day. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, on the last day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, I never knew you, because, uh, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you, because you didn't feed the hungry, clothe the naked, mm-hmm. give drink to the thirsty, etc. Um, and he'll judge all men according to their deeds. Paul says, uh, by patient endurance and doing good, those who seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. So very different conception of what's taking place on the cross and then in the two uh, religions and, and different conception of how we apply that to our lives. Now, the Protestant view is just patently unbiblical. It's just unbiblical. It's all, the scripture doesn't teach that. It never says that God imputes our sins to Christ or that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It never says that. Um, and, uh, and worse, it makes God into a tyrant because it makes God into the kind of judge who would punish the innocent and acquit the guilty. I mean... Did I say that right? Yeah, I did say yeah, that. Right. I did. Punish the innocent, acquit the guilty. Yeah. And if any, if we saw a judge do that, we would run screaming from the room to either you know to impeach him or to the voting booth to vote him out. Right. Yep. yep. And the way Protestant responds to that uh, to that critique of uh, injustice is to say, well, who are you to judge God? Right. But then you've destroyed any rational basis for belief if you said like the Christian religion is an, is an, is a co- is a complete absurdity that offends all of our moral intuitions, but you should believe it anyway? My question would be, why? Yeah. What's the evidence for it? In that case, if, if, you're, if you're demanding absurdities of me, there's no ground for me to believe it. Matt, we hope that's helpful for you as you're uh, interacting with your uh, Bible study group there. Hope that's helpful, and uh, thanks so much for your call and for your kind words about the show. Call to communion here on EWTN. Michael in Brandenburg, Kentucky, listening on Meade County Catholic Radio, called in. Michael said, I'm not going to church right now because I don't see any church living out the Great Commission. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Pardon me for saying so, but that sounds a bit to me like saying everyone at my gym is fat. (laughs) So I've decided to cancel my membership, quit working out, go home, and eat French fry mayonnaise and bacon sandwiches. Mm. Right? I mean, I don't don't see the logic, right? I don't see the logic. Right. Um, But I'd like to dispute the premise. I'd like to dispute the premise. Um, 
Jesus' command to the apostles, not to me, not to you, not to Tom, but to the apostles, was to go into all nations and make disciples, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, um, look around planet Earth. Look around planet Earth. Find me a patch of land that isn't in a Catholic diocese where there's not a bishop. You know, uh, I mean, th there are a few places where it's hard to get to Mass, I'll grant you, yeah. because you'll get your head lopped off if you go, right? But, uh, but the gospel has gone out to all the world. And uh, in, in the nine years we've done this show, I think only once has anyone ever called and said, what is Catholicism? That did happen one time. Most people who call in or who hear the sound of my voice, they have some conception of the God of Abraham and mm -hmm. the Catholic Church and mm -hmm. the person of Jesus. And, and so I, I, I kind of think the Catholic Church has done it. I kind of think the Catholic Church has taken the gospel to the ends of the earth and made disciples of all nations. Now, the ongoing work of the new evangelization and, and of catechesis and of making missionary disciples continues. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, pope after pope after pope in my church has issued encyclical and apostolic exhortation after encyclical after apostolic exhortation, uh, exhorting the church to, to evangelism as, as the church's chief task. Not every Catholic heeds that call. Yeah. But in every generation, many do. I mean, look, we're we're not the bee's knees around here, but what do you think we're doing at EWTN? Exactly. I mean, we're trying to evangelize, you know, in the name of the church. We're not the church. We're just Catholics who belong to the church. But yep. we're trying to do it in the name of the church. And people write the network every single day saying we've come to Christ because of the ministry of, of this. And we're just we're just one apostolate among thousands around the globe, yeah, thousands around the globe, and sometimes it's through radio, sometimes it's through the, the witness of one-on-one of -on -one friendship. Most people who become Catholic, this is what the data show from RCIA, vast majority of the people who become Catholic do so not because they listen to EWTN or some other broadcast or because someone knocked at their door, you know, a stranger with a, an evangelistic track, but through personal relationship. You meet somebody at the water cooler. You mm -hmm. you befriend them, and yeah. and they come into the church. Better yet, you marry them. That really that gets them in quick. You know. You bet. That, that, I mean, it it's going on constantly, constantly. My own diocese. I, I know this because I was doing the the data from the Kennedy Directory recently. In the last say uh, about ten fifteen years, has grown about twenty five percent in terms of the number of Catholics. Really. And uh, when I went into the data, I thought, well, maybe that's just from immigration. Then I actually that actually counted up the number of baptisms. Uh -huh. And the number of people entering the church through RCA, and you know what I found? Hmm. It accounts for 100 percent of the growth. How about that? Yeah. Okay. So like we're we're making Catholics, and we grew our, we grew our church by 25 percent in my little diocese over the last say 10 to 15 years, while the population of Alabama grew at a fraction of that rate. How about that, Michael? Thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Colleen on YouTube. Colleen Colleen says, "Are traditional Catholic prayers?" just as helpful to souls in purgatory that were not Catholic in lifetime. Uh, yeah, thanks. So, uh, look, the, the, the line between the saved and the lost or those that are like, you know, in first class in purgatory versus coach, if you will, 
uh-huh. does not pass between Catholic and non-Catholic. That that's not that's not the way it goes. It it passes between th- th- those who are more or less just, more or less charitable, more or less faithful, more or less prudent, more or less uh, temperate, and so we're evaluated. Christ doesn't doesn't let you. It's not like the, when Christ judges souls, he says, "Okay, we have one one line over here for Catholics, one line over here for non-Catholics." Uh, you know, if you're if you're Catholic, you get a pass on say gluttony, but non-Catholics you don't get a pass on gluttony. No, no, we're all judged by the same standard of yes. charity and virtue. The point of being Catholic is that the grace of the Catholic Church should help you live the virtuous life better. But if some Catholic is vicious and lacks virtue, then the Protestant or the Jew or the Muslim or the Hindu or the atheist who lives a more virtuous life than the Catholic is further up the line than the Catholic. Wow. Well, there you go. And uh, thank you so much, Colleen. We hope that's helpful for you uh, watching us on YouTube. As we're heading out the door, i got to point this out. Our screener, Matt Kabinsky, points out that, uh, he, well, at least he alleges, that the moon is under the Diocese of Orlando. We were talking about expansion all over the world. Oh, yeah. And, and oh, he's, yeah. he says so this So if is, you plant a church on the moon, it'll, the Bishop of Orlando will, will have that jurisdiction? Exactly, because new territories became part of the diocese where the voyage began. And because Cape Canaveral is in the Diocese of Orlando, that, I mean, that's his now, logic. Do you know that Alabama, where we live, yes, right, yes. used to be in the Diocese of Montreal? Wow. We're, we're going back a few years, though. Oh, that was a long time ago. Yeah, like, you know, 17th <laughs> century. But the, the, in the Diocese of Mobile, in front of the cathedral, they have a plaque that kind of lays out the history of the Diocese of Mobile, which used to be all of Alabama. And it says, I learned this from the plaque, that w- the whole state, the whole region used to be under the Diocese of Montreal. Amazing. See? See what you learn on this program? Thank you. Thank you for that, Matt. And thank you, Dr. David Andrews. Let's go to the moon. Let's go. We do this program, as I said earlier, Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast. Charles will have that posted for you in the next hour or so at EWTNradio.net, EWTNradio.net. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you next time. That would hopefully be for you tomorrow. We'll be here. Hope that you will as well on the Wednesday edition of Called Communion. Until then, have a wonderful day. Stay hydrated. God bless.